0: Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Pelshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him and king nebuchadnezzar your father your father the king made him chief of the magicians enchanters chaldeans and astrologers because an excellent spirit knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems were found in this daniel the king named belshazzar now let daniel be called and he will show the interpretation then daniel was brought in before the king the king answered and said to daniel you are that daniel one of the exiles of judah whom the king my father brought from judah i have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you now Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old let's pray lord take the reading of your word i pray may it penetrate our thoughts our lives and use this instrument lord this human instrument of our pastor to speak forth with boldness with grace mercy truth and courage i pray for jesus sake
1: we come to Daniel chapter 5, I hope you noticed once again the big theme that has been woven throughout this whole book so far. And it's a theme that will continue to be woven through the rest of the book, and it is simply this, that the Most High reigns. God reigns over the affairs of the kingdoms of men. God is sovereign. And what sets God apart from all the other gods is that God knows the end from the beginning, that God can predict what will come hundreds and thousands of years down the road and predict it with absolute accuracy. If I had the opportunity this morning, I would go through 511 verses that show us God's knowledge of the future and give us specific illustrations of things that he predicted that came true with absolute precision. It's a point, though, that God will make his sovereign reign to Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, to Darius, to the people of Israel, and to finally you and I. And if we miss this point that is being made in the book of Daniel, we really miss the whole point of the book, and these stories and accounts just be, just remain stories and accounts to us of some time way back when. In this particular story, we have a contrast, and it is a particular contrast that has thrown me for a loop. And I don't have time to go into this either, but just enough to say that it threw me for a loop in a significant way, and one of the things that God has helped in the last couple of weeks was he brought me back to sanity. In this particular chapter, we have God's ways contrasted with Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. We see the sovereign election of God at work in the lives of two individuals, in the heart and the life of Nebuchadnezzar and in the heart and the life of Belshazzar. And the experience of one king with God stands in marked contrast with the experience of another king and God. We know that Nebuchadnezzar finally lifted up his eyes towards heaven in repentance, And he acknowledged that God was, in fact, sovereign over the affairs of men and over his life. And we heard, as we just read in Daniel 5, that Belshazzar resisted to the end, was unwilling to humble himself, even though he knew of God and God's ways of dealing with his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar was quickly cut off and his kingdom taken from him. And I do want us to think about, and you can read this on your own, I just throw these out if you just make these notes, you can read about this in Ezekiel chapter 18, but if I don't get a chance to say this later, I do want to say it now, don't presume upon the grace of God that he has shown to others. To know that God is gracious and yet not turn from your sin in light of that grace is to fall under the certain judgment of God. And so as we reflect on the contrast between these two men, don't think that the only one or only one of them has relevance for you and not the other. That there could be no possibility of our traveling down the road of Belshazzar. I would not hesitate to say that there are even those here today who are very much like him. And he is a warning to us. He is a reminder to us to see to it that we do not fall short of the grace of God. This has been a book so far and I I do want to just take a minute to catch us up to date. Chapter 1 has been about introducing us to how we live faithfully in Babylon. And the pressures that are brought to bear on us by the culture and the world around us to conform and to bring our lives in line with the antithesis to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness. I hope I was able to show to you that chapters 2 and 7 are balanced and they reveal to us or give us a picture of a God who reveals the future. Chapters uh, 3 and 6 give us a picture of a God who is able to rescue us. And chapters 4 and 5 are about a God who reigns and rules from heaven above in the kingdoms of men. And so as we come now to chapter 5, we are introduced to Belshazzar. He seems to be dropped into the picture out of nowhere. For the first four chapters, we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar and God's work in his heart and God's instruction to him about the present and about the future. But all of a sudden, Belshazzar appears on the scene, seemingly out of nowhere. And as it so happens, we drop into Belshazzar on the last night of his life and on the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And we realized that the fall of the Babylonian Empire was something that God had predicted would happen 64 years earlier in the dream or the vision that he had given to Nebuchadnezzar. It is now 539 BC. Belshazzar was the oldest son of Nabonidus. He was the last king of Babylon. He was not loved by the Babylonians. In fact, he was quite despised by them. And so he chose to live his life in somewhat of an exile in a place called Tema, um, which is somewhere, they believe, in Saudi Arabia. Four men had been on the throne uh, before him following Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar, as I said, was uh, Nabonidus' oldest son. And he reigned in his place. And so when it says he was the third, um, uh, he could give Daniel the third place in the kingdom, that makes sense. Because his father was actually number one, Belshazzar was number two, and he was willing to give up position number three. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was not his literal father, but he would have been his ancestor, just like Abraham is called the father of the Jews. He's not the literal father of Jews that live today, but he is their ancestor. And so Nebuchadnezzar was the ancestor of Belshazzar. If you want to find a New Testament parallel of this story, go to Luke chapter 12 and read the story of the rich fool. Because we know that on the rich... uh, the. The, the rich fuel, fool that, as he was praying or preparing for a life of many years of eating and drinking and ease, the Lord came to him and said, "You fool, tonight your soul is required of you." So let's get to this last night of Belshazzar 's life and of the Babylonian empire. It begins with a party, and this is like a party like none other has been thrown. And the first Heading that I've got, and I really had trouble organizing my thoughts, but I simply put it this way with position comes greater responsibility. At least that's what we should expect. And I think this is self evident. As a father in the home, by virtue of your role as a father, you have greater responsibility to lead and to walk in a certain way in your family. Leaders in a church have greater responsibility to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Politicians, we expect more out of the way that they live their lives. People who are in positions of authority and power have a greater responsibility. Belshazzar didn't understand this. He abused his position and he acted irresponsibly before the people, before his officials, and before God. And if you noticed, it's his excessive drinking that contributed to that. Six times in this chapter, there is a reference to drinking and they drank wine. We find him having an arrogant posture towards the army that is right outside his walls. And he has blasphemy towards God as he worships the the gods of gold and silver out of the goblets from God's temple. He was religiously irresponsible. Verses 1 to 5 just describe an incredible party. And the highlight of this party was alcohol. You, you see that. You can't miss that. It's woven in there five times. It's a point made again and again. This wasn't just a cup of wine that they had. It was an orgy of drinking which was promoted by Belshazzar himself who seemed to take the lead and kind of stand up before the people and say, let me show you how I will drink myself under the table. It's what people do today. We find these kind of parties happen all over the place. They certainly happen on college campuses, but they happen in our neighborhoods even today, where alcohol flows oh Man, I can't even talk right. Flows freely, and it is somewhat of a bragging right to how much one can drink. Most understand how drinking suppresses inhibitions. We do things and say things that we normally wouldn't do or say. Belshazzar started to do that. As the wine started to take effect in his body, he began to mock the God of Israel. He knew about the stolen articles that had been taken from the temple. He knew exactly where his his father had put them. His ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, had put them. He had put them in some place and he said, you go get those things and we're going to use those to drink from. And in open rebellion against the God of Israel, he praised the gods of gold and silver. What a stupid thing to do. And that's not the end of his irresponsibility. This is a really strange night to throw this kind of a party. And let me tell you why. At that very moment, outside the walls of Babylon was the Medo-Persian army. And inside the walls was Belshazzar, Throwing this extravagant party where they were getting knocked down drunk. I was thinking about this, and there's maybe a number of reasons, but certainly his lack of responsibility is displayed through his arrogance. He might have thought himself invincible. After all, he had been aware, he must have been aware of the Medes and the Persians just outside his wall. But if you go on on any kind of history, you can even go online and Google it, you can find that the wall system around the city of Babylon was second to none. In fact, there was a double-walled system, and around it was sort of a moat. And he must have thought himself impregnable that there was no way that this uh, army could ever breach the walls of this great city and do him any harm. And so this party might have been a statement of his security and his self-confidence. It was an arrogant party. After all, weren't they drinking from the vessels of a god that their king earlier had destroyed and taken their people captive and brought back some of the vessels from his temple and stuck them in his temple? Who could ever come against Belshazzar? And so there was a note of arrogance in him. But little did he know, and you can find this in some of the Greek historians, that the engineers of the Medes and the Persian armies had designed a way of diverting the Euphrates River just enough so a group of commandos could come in through the river into the wall and make it possible for the rest of the army to come in maybe his lack of responsibility is displayed a little bit through fatalism you say well where do you get that from well he knew about the most high god he knew about the, the dreams and the interpretations that his, his father or his ancestor Nebuchadnezzar has been received. He knew about the, the idol, and he knew about the interpretation of the idol. And he knew about the stone that was cut out without a hand that would crush it and that would fall. He knew that one day the, the, the armies of the Medes and the Persians would somehow come and would take over the Babylonian army. And maybe he had just given over to fatalism. You know, there are numbers of people who when they first confront the sovereignty of God, give in to fatalism. And they say, well, if God is sovereign, if God determines everything, then what can I ever do? What a horrible misunderstanding of the biblical truth about God's election and God's sovereign work in our lives. But maybe, just maybe, he had given in to a fatalistic view. And possibly it was his worldview, a lack of responsibility and really thinking through the issues of life It was a worldview maybe that had no certainty about life after death. It's a worldview that says there's nothing to live for once I die. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, which is part of the the hope of the Christian. What gives us hope about the future? It's the resurrection. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, Paul says then we're worse off than everybody else, and we might as well what? Eat, drink, and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. And so maybe he had no hope of life after death. It was the hand, the writing on the wall, that sobered him up. So much so that he lost control of his bodily functions and there was a wet spot that appeared under his chair. That really is literally what it means. The knots of his joints were loosened. He was so terrified by what he saw as that hand wrote on the wall that his bowels let loose. And not only was it a physically disturbing thing, But the Bible, and you you heard it read, his whole countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him. He cried aloud. He promised rewards that remained unclaimed. His lords were baffled. This whole room was suddenly turned into a place of confusion and chaos and terror. Strange, is it not that the army outside his wall had no effect on him, but something inside of him just terrorized him when he saw that hand? And we know, do we not, loved ones, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And as Belshazzar was here, he had recognized already his religion had failed him. His advisors were unable to give him the meaning. Support had fallen out from under and Nobody could help him. God had frightened him and he was terrified. And even though he had been given significant power and position in Babylon for 10 years is irresponsibly had brought him to the place where he was absolutely terrorized. And even at this point of terror, God's grace would be evident to him. The second point simply is with privilege comes greater opportunity. At least that's what we would expect. The first nine verses set the stage for three speeches that follow. The first is from the lips of the queen. Not everyone in the midst of such complete suffering has someone who comes running at the sound of pain. It was, what a gift of God that as he cried aloud, the queen heard it and she came running. And it would, might have been his great grandmother. We, we, nobody really knows who it was, but she came running and kind of says, what's the matter? What's all the fuss? And it's fascinating, we don't have time to trace this either, the way godly women have been used by God at such critical points. We think of Deborah, we think of um, uh, um, uh, Abigail, we think of Mary, we think of Lydia, women who kept their composure under extraordinary circumstances and spoke peace and wisdom into situations. And here comes this queen, and her, her word is direct, and I love this word, there is a man. Nobody in Babylon could be found, but the queen was aware of a man. And notice, and we don't have time to look at this either, but you on your own, go through a note. How many times Daniel is used in those verses? Remember, his name had been changed. We wanted to try and forget Daniel, so he would never ever uh, sort of be reminded, and we wouldn't be reminded of his history. But here, we are reminded that Daniel didn't lose his identity he didn't lose his name. And she says, there is a man, Daniel. What a privilege to know a man like Daniel. One who has answers to life. One who lives for another purpose. One who serves the living God. Loved ones, so often the world has no answers for its struggles. None. None. It doesn't know what to do when it gets a terrible diagnosis. It doesn't know what to do when its bank account collapses. It doesn't know what to do when it loses its job. But would we say there is a man or there is a woman who can come and speak the truth about Jesus Christ and the hope that he offers to those who put their trust in him? Oh, may we... Who know him be those who point people who have no answers to the living God. You might recall a few weeks ago I said that Daniel was a gift of God to Nebuchadnezzar. This time it doesn't appear that he will be a gift. He's no ordinary man. You on your own can just note the things that the queen says about him. He's a man full of the spirit, insight, intelligent wisdom. She reminds him how he had been a significant help to Nebuchadnezzar so many years ago because he had an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, perception, and ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. But where was he? He had, been, he had to be called. He, he was nowhere to be found. He had to be called in to this great meeting. Such a man like Daniel had been sidelined. He had been put out to pasture. Here before Belshazzar now was an opportunity that for years had been squandered. He had great privilege, but he had just rejected and set aside Daniel and all that he had to offer him. What a brutal mistake that would prove to be. Had Belshazzar, like his predecessors after Nebuchadnezzar acted in Rehoboam-like fashion, replacing all the wise men with young and inexperienced and his friends. You can read about Rehoboam and the folly that that created and the disaster that that brought for God's people, Israel. What opportunities in the form of people does your privilege give you? You have access to grandparents. You have access to parents. You have access to godly men and women? Do you bring them into your circle and into your life, or do you just push them out for other people and other things and other priorities? What are we doing with the opportunities that God has given to us by virtue of the privileges that we have? The next speech that is recorded is from the lips of Belshazzar. This reiterates the privilege that Gives access to people. Twice he said, I have heard of you to Daniel. I have heard of you. And whether he's referring to just what the queen had said or if he just in his own life, he, he, we do know that he had heard of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the things that had been going on. There was a knowledge of Daniel, but the king's words are sharp to Daniel, none the same. There's a disdain in him. He says, are you one of the Judean exiles? In other words, you're a foreigner, aren't you? You're a captive. You're a loser. We destroy people like you. He was likely thinking in his head, how could you ever help me? A slave. Such disdain, such privilege for such a gifted man. And then he says that my predecessor brought back from Judah. In other words, he's saying, you're an old man. What do you have to offer me By this time, Daniel was likely 79 or 80 years old. Think about that, 79 or 80 years old. Surely, Belshazzar must have been thinking, well, you're too old to be of any use to me. I've got my young advisors now. I've got people who know the times. I've got people who know the trends, and they're the ones that need to be advising me. Too old to have any wisdom to give in the service of the king, he thought. Clearly, Belshazzar had put him on the shelf. But how different was the perception of Daniel than the queen's? She had great respect for him. Belshazzar had no respect for him. And we could say to Belshazzar, and you threw away such an amazing opportunity of such a gifted man to serve in your kingdom. As a side note, and I can't stay here either. Um, I think it's in your growth group notes, but how do we as a church continue to remember and access and benefit from those who are older, from those who still have incredible wisdom and gifts and skill to offer us as a church? How do we do that and benefit from what God has blessed us with through them? His privilege had given him an incredible opportunity to benefit from a rich theological historical heritage. You see, Daniel didn't want or need the king's resort or reward. He was, a prophet. he was not a prophet for hire. He was surely aware himself that the Medes and the Persians were camped outside on the other side of the wall. What good would third ruler in the kingdom be tomorrow morning? He didn't need the king's rewards at all. And here's the third speech, and it's Daniel's speech. And he emphasizes the interaction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And the theme of these verses are the same uh, as that of Daniel 1 and one and 2. Remember, the theme is that the living God, the most high God, has interaction with the kingdom of men. It's not just a God who's way away up there. It's a God who is involved in the intimate day-to-day affairs of your life, my life, of our world. It's exactly what he says in Daniel 1 and 2 that Nebuchadnezzar went against Jerusalem but God gave Jehoiakim into his hand. And so Daniel begins he says just as he says God had uh, given Nebuchadnezzar there's God giving God is sovereign. God had given Nebuchadnezzar his greatness, his glory, his majesty. All the earth feared him. He has power over life and death to do with people what he will. But he was arrogant and proud, and so God took it all away from him. And he gave him the mind of an animal. And the note verse 21, which is the theological point that we pointed out from chapter 4, until he acknowledged that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men and sets anyone he wants over it. And then the knife into Belshazzar's heart. And you knew all this. Wow. You acted with arrogance. You sinned with a high hand. Even though you knew all that God had done in your ancestor's life. What an incredible opportunity he had squandered. He had been given an opportunity to consider life. His privilege had given him access to a story and a people in his life who had seen God work and who had responded to that work. This was a significant opportunity afforded by virtue of his connection with Nebuchadnezzar. And we would accept this, wouldn't we expect the same response to God that Nebuchadnezzar had? See, every one of you here today is privileged to be here. You have a privilege that a lot of people don't have in this community and don't even have around this world. You've had the opportunity to hear the Word of God read. You've had the opportunity to hear the Word of God sung. You've had the opportunity already to hear the gospel in the choir song. You have had incredible privilege given to you. Some of you here even have incredible spiritual heritage. Grandparents, parents, uncles, aunts. Two generations, three generations of those who have walked with God and those who have seen God do incredible things in their lives. But let me tell you, with that privilege comes incredible opportunity and responsibility. You've heard the gospel. You've heard about Jesus. But that doesn't guarantee it will benefit you unless you also respond to Christ. See, one of the fallacies in our world today is the education fallacy. Just educate people enough and we'll change their behavior. What a bunch of hogwash. Unless people are willing to take that information and apply it in their lives, it will make no difference. You can educate them until the cows come home, and it will make no difference in their life. It's the same. You can pour out privilege upon privilege upon privilege of people with the gospel about Jesus Christ. And unless they choose to say, I will put my trust in Christ, it will not benefit them a bit. What have you done with the opportunities that God has given you through the people he has surrounded you with? The final point. With premeditated sin comes greater accountability. Of this you can be certain. Ibelshazzar squandered his opportunities. His sin was gross and premeditated. Daniel doesn't mince words, and you can read this and underline these things on your own, he says, "But you have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You drank from the vessels, you praised the gods made of gold and silver. You have not glorified God. That is scary. His was defiance, rebellion, outright rejection against God. This was sin with a high hand. This was intentional transgression. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, it was like Daniel was saying to him, You are hanging over hell by a spider's thread. This is the Old Testament version of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. If you sin with a high hand, you are under. The judgment of God. I think what has swirled around in my mind more than anything these past couple weeks is the remainder of verse 23. But you have not glorified God, listen to this, who holds your breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. I looked at a different number of versions, but God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. But the God who controls your life breath and every move you make, him you did not glorify. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Do you understand this, loved one? Do you understand the nature of God's authority and sovereign rule in your life? He holds your breath in His hand. He controls your every step and way. As I indicated earlier, this book is about the sovereign reign and rule of God. He rules the hearts of minds, the, the hearts, minds, kings, fire, animals, the past, the present, the future. And as I said, I battled this the last three months in a, in a fresh way. And God has been merciful to me in the last couple of weeks and just helped me in a fresh way grasp this central truth of the bible we are his creatures he controls my breath he controls my destiny and so the judgment is certain the writing on the wall could have been easier for anyone to translate. It's just, what did it mean? There were units of measure, common units of measure that appeared on the wall. Three verbs. The difficulty was in knowing how they were used though and in what they meant. And they were three words that directed at Belshazzar, but they apply to each one of us here today. The first one mene. Because I want you to understand that what's written on the wall of Nebuchadnezzar is also written on your wall and my wall. Your days are numbered, was the first word. This is a biblical truth, and nowhere is it taught more clearly in Psalm 90. Near the end, the psalmist prays, teach me to number my days. In another psalm, the, the, the writer prays, Lord, reveal to me my end, the end of my life and the number of my days. In another psalm, it says, all my days were written in a book and planned before a single one of them began. There is no such thing as an accidental death or a tragic death. I say that. I hope you hear my compassion there. I mean that. That that, that whether you, you die in the womb or whether you die at 110, you die when your number of days is up. That is God's sovereign control on our lives. And we need to learn to number our days. We need to Think about the end of our lives. This is a parable of the rich fool again who was unwilling to count his days. And he laid up treasure for many, many years to come, but God said to him, You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And so, every one of us here today, don't forget your days are numbered. Don't think that on the last day of your life you will have a heart that will say, I want to choose God. Doesn't happen very often. Tackle. You have been weighed in the balance and found deficient. Simply accountability. There's coming a day when God will call each one of us to account every word, thought, act, motive, intention. The truth is all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none of us here that on our own tips the favor of uh, the 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 balance of of God's approval into our favor. Are we doomed? No, the Bible says absolutely not. That if we will put our trust in Jesus Christ, if we will believe that God took our sin and put it on Christ and took his righteousness and put it on us, we can have everlasting life. And we can find that God will say, welcome into my kingdom. The final one is Perez. Your kingdom has come to an end. I'm thinking about this a lot. I, not because I'm thinking I'm going to die tomorrow. I might, but all your stuff, everything you've worked to accumulate, everything you own, everything you've saved, everything you've bought, everything you've built, will one day be taken from you and given to another. It really will. We need to think about that, loved ones. Think about how that we use that stuff now then and what we do with it and how we hang on to it. Where are we laying up treasure? Are we laying up treasure in heaven? The truth is expressed by Job so clearly. Naked I came into this world and naked I will leave this world. And everything that you have accumulated, everything that you have built, you have absolutely no control over it and it goes to somebody else. It really matters not what you accomplish on earth in comparison to what you accomplish in heaven. And verse 30 is such a sobering verse. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at age 62. This is a side note, struck me as Barry was reading that Darius wasn't even born when God made the prediction to Nebuchadnezzar that the Medes and the Persians would take over his kingdom. It's a sobering reminder, loved ones, of the sovereignty of God, of the responsibility of power, of the gift of privilege, of the terror of premeditated sin. And so we all live with a danger outside of our gates. What's the danger outside of the gate of your life? We all need to remember that what's written on Belshazzar's wall is also written on our wall. And we need to understand that this morning we have a choice to make. I implore you today to be reconciled to God. Or as the choir sang, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for this incredible chapter which is so full of help for us today. Spirit of God, would you take it and apply it now to each one of us. In
0: Jesus' name we pray, amen.